Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all can have a seat. Very excited to have you all. What is it about singing Christmas songs? It just, it just does something internally. Like I sing a little bit louder. Maybe I even flirt with singing in the right key uh, on occasion. But there's just something that's beautiful that happens. So I'm uh, really grateful. And of course, the words are just amazing and moving. Um, well, my name is Ryan Pale. And uh, today actually marks the last day, my final day as the interim youth pastor here at Southwood. So I'm turning in the skinny jeans and the Jordans and erasing the tattoos and all of that stuff um, and calling it, uh, calling it a day uh, with the youth ministry. But I want to steal a moment uh, to declare my gratitude uh, for that opportunity, for the chance to get to be with some of the most amazing kids who constantly remind me to hope in the next generation. What y'all have been doing uh, in your kids' lives, I know you don't see it at home, maybe as much, but what y'all have been doing is really remarkable. And what the Lord is going to do in and through these kids, uh, we're really excited about. And we have a guy coming, Sam Payne. He starts tomorrow, and we have prayed for this guy. We have sought after him. We have longed for him to be here in the Southwood Youth Ministry, and the guy is gifted. Uh, he is really gifted. But what we want to do is we want to make sure that we transition really well. Uh, anytime transition happens, there's always like the comparison game that happens. Like, so some people, if they're, if they're not attached to me or if they weren't attached to Jared, then okay, there's a new guy in. That's great. He's uh, another face. Wonderful. Uh, but anytime there's an attachment, it's hard to not compare, right? Uh, so-and-so isn't as good as so-and-so or so-and-so is better than so-and-so. So anytime transition happens, we start to compare our circumstances. Your students, who have experienced three youth ministers in the past year and a half are no doubt going to struggle with that. That's just going to be part of it. So what we would love for you to do to help us with the transition is to have the conversation with your students. Whenever you hear the comparison game, it starts, oh, I wish, I wish Sam did this, or why didn't Ryan do that, whatever it is. Um, can you just help your students direct them maybe to 1 Corinthians 3, which Paul is writing to this church that he loved deeply. And he says, guys, I, I just planted. Some other guy came along and he watered, but it's God who gives the increase. Can you seize those moments when your students might be struggling to compare? Can you seize those moments to say, wow, let's celebrate the role that Jared had in your life or that Ryan had in your life and that Sam is going to have in your life? Can you all just seize that moment to talk to them about the transition, to know that God has provided not just those three but all the other youth staff, all of the other college students that have faithfully poured into them, can you help your students see that God has been with them, God has cared for him, or for all of them through the roles of these different people in their life? If y'all could help with that, that would be outstanding. And in the meantime, Sam's going to be incredible, and it's going to be very easy for him to transition in. Make sense? Good with that? Awesome. Uh, okay, so we're speaking this morning on the story of Balaam. Uh, as I would call the prophet prophet, uh, and his donkey, all right? So those of you uh, who are familiar with this, one, I will no doubt get text messages saying, why is Pale the one that's going to talk about the talking donkey? Um, so I'll no doubt get those. I'll look forward to those. But if you've come across this passage, it's usually for one of two reasons. One is because you faithfully made it today like 85 of the Read the Bible in a Year plan. You have been a faithful warrior, and you've made it all the way into February, maybe March, 
in this plan. And so you've gotten to Numbers 22, which, talked, which talks about the story of Balaam and his donkey. Or if you're like me, you came across this passage when you got a hold of a King James Bible because you knew that the King James Bible, they don't use the word donkey in there. And so you find it and then you snicker. All right. And so uh, those are probably the only two reasons that you've come across this passage. But what I want to do is I want to say there's actually more to it than just the donkey. And because most of us in here probably aren't Old Testament scholars, I'm going to just assume that for this morning. Because of that, we're actually going to have to do a little bit of work to try to figure out what is it that the Lord is trying to help us to understand. And when I say a little bit of work, what I mean is this, that we have to kind of dig. We have to understand what's happening in Israel What's been going on, what's happening to them right now, and what's going to be happening in the future for them. So we have to work a little bit. So if y'all would bear with me for like five, maybe ten minutes, we're going to talk about the story of Israel up until this point so that we can know what's their relationship with God like. And how's the donkey play a role? What, is, uh, what are their assumptions about life at this point? And how does the donkey and Balaam play a role in it? So we're going to spend some time on that. And we're going to find that there's much more to the story than a talking donkey. So first, where are we? Where is Israel at this point? Um, Israel has, we remember the story, we've heard about it all semester. They have witnessed the miracles of God. They were enslaved, they were oppressed in Egypt, and God, through many, many miraculous events, saved them out of oppression, out of slavery, into freedom. They passed through a sea When the waters parted, they walked through, and then when Pharaoh decided, hey, I actually don't want the slaves to go free, he chased after them, he sent his army after them, and when they were chasing the Israelites, the Israelites walked through the sea on dry land, and then when the Egyptian soldiers came, then the water rushed in and destroyed, eliminated the Egyptian army. Like, these people saw that happen. These people saw God guiding them every single day day through the wilderness. There's just fire appearing at nighttime or this unique cloud at daytime that's guiding them through their exact path. They've had every single day just manna, Chick-fil-A appears every single morning for them and they have all that they need, right? So they've seen the Lord do some amazing things that you and I, frankly, will probably not have a chance to see, but they saw it. They also are stuck in the wilderness. God said, okay, I'm delivering you out of this place, Egypt, and I'm taking you to this place, the promised land. And we're going to get to it this way. And so they're stuck somewhere in this squiggly line that looks like one of my dad's shortcuts. All right, so they're stuck somewhere. And they're tired. So what do they do when they're stuck and they're tired? They get grumpy They get rebellious and they whine a lot. They even go so far as to say, man, Egypt is pretty nice. Like I know that we were oppressed and we were beaten, but at least we didn't have to eat the same thing every day. I know they killed a few of our kids, but at least we had a stable home. We knew where we were going to sleep that night. They started to forget about the oppression And they started to whine and they started to complain. Some of them went so far as to have a rebellion against God's chosen leader, Moses and Aaron. Blake talked about it a few weeks ago. Rebellion after rebellion, whining and whining. 
and whining. So that's the people of Israel. It's safe to say that they're not in the best place in the world, spiritually or otherwise. Let's check in on their leader, Moses. A couple of chapters before this, Moses, just he's sick of it. He's on like the last leg of a road trip. He's like, I'm turning this car around. Like that's where Moses's mentality is at this point. He's sick of the people arguing and complaining. So they, they come up to him at one point. And they're like, hey, Moses, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. And uh, Moses uh, is like, okay, God, can you help me out? The people are whining again. They're thirsty. And God said, yeah, I'm, I'll help you. Um, speak to that rock over there. And as you do so, water is going to pour out of it. And it's going to provide for them, just like I've always done. And so Moses goes to the people, and he sees the people complaining again. These people, if, you, if you've ever been to Disneyland, um, one of the beauties of Disneyland, like it's magical and wonderful and all that good stuff, so much fun. The beauty of Disneyland, like what I really kind of smirked at later, was the fact that you could see every, you could see the same conversation of a parent and their kids in like 80 different languages. Every parent in languages all across the world are lecturing their kids about how ungrateful they are, how they spend a lot of money and a lot of time to get them to this amazing magical place, and they're whining because they didn't get a Buzz Lightyear doll, right? So every parent in Mandarin and Spanish and everything are having the same lecture. That's what Moses is dealing with. He's sick of it. So he goes up to the rock that that God says, hey, speak to this rock. He goes up to the rock in our frustration, like beats the rock and curses the people and says, you ungrateful and rebellious people. He beats the rock and water flows out. Uh, And because of that, uh, Moses was eliminated from the blessing. He was supposed to inherit the promised land to go into the promised land. And because of that moment, he forfeited his blessing. He's not going into the promised land because of that. So for those of you who are older men who have ever complained about a generation for being lazy, self-righteous, entitled, not grateful, don't know how good they've got it, Moses just became your patriarch. Right, so that's what happened at the rock. So the people are not doing great. But the tide has kind of started to change a little bit. It started to shift. Now the people, after they've wandered through the wilderness for years and years and years, now they've started to encounter these different people, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the people of Bashan. They've gotten through these people. They've waged war against them. They've won. They've beaten them. And they've gone into their land. And they started living in their land. So these millions of people have had some success in war. And now they sit at the kingdom of Moab. Like Moab is the gate into the promised land. It's the last bastion, the last city before they go into their promised land, and they sit at the doorstep. The king of Balak, one of the key key figures for this morning, the king of Balak stands there and he's like, oh my gosh, the people are here. They're at my doorstep. I saw these people who conquered Egypt, or who uh, escaped from Egypt, and who have conquered all these different people, and now they're like, they're knocking on my door. So So the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, he freaks out. And he tries to use every weapon he can. And what we're going to find is that God is a protector. He protects us. In Numbers 22, verses 5 through 7, it says this. So he sent messengers, he, Balak, he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, uh, in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, 
Behold, a people came out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the surface of the land. And they are living opposite me. Now, therefore, please come. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. And perhaps I might be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam, and they repeated Balak's words to him. So what happened here is Balak, the king, terrified, he says, hey, I'm going to go find the magician, like the local magician who anytime this guy Balaam blesses somebody, they're blessed. And anytime he curses somebody, they're cursed. So he sends word to him and he sends a little fee along with him to say, hey, look, I've got some money for you. I want you to do this thing. I want you to curse Israel so that I might have a chance of beating them. And Balaam's like, okay, I, I like what we're talking about here. I, I can say these words for a fee. I've got no problem with that. But let me sleep on it, and I'll get back to you in the morning, uh, to the messengers. And so he sleeps on it. God comes to him. God, the protector, comes to him and says, don't you dare curse those people. Those are my people. They're set apart unto me. They are holy people, a righteous people. Leave them alone. You cannot curse them. So Balaam wakes up in the morning. He tells the messengers, hey, look, can't do it. I can't go with you. Some messengers go back to Balak, the king, and they're like, hey, Balaam's not going to do it. He can't speak against God. So then Balak says, okay, I'm going to send you with even more money. I'm going to send all of my local celebrities to greet this guy, to roll out the red carpet for him. And so Balaam finally says, after that second time, he says, all right, I'm just going to hear him out. Like, I know God said, don't prophesy, like, don't curse them. But I just want to hear the king out, especially if we have a lot of money being offered. So he goes and he hears him out. And God is furious. He's furious that Balaam would dare to go and to speak a curse to the people. So on the way there, we meet the donkey. Balaam is riding back to King Balak on his donkey, just going on the road, minding their own business. And then all of a sudden, the donkey sees an angel of the Lord standing right in the road. And the donkey freaks out and runs. And so Balaam goes and he starts beating the donkey to get back on the road. So the donkey does. And then the donkey sees an angel of the Lord again. And the donkey freaks out, runs into a wall and like hurts Balaam's leg. So then Balaam again beats the donkey. And then a third time they get on the road, the donkey's like, I'm done. I'm out. She's like, no more. And so she just lays down and she's done. And then we have this funny exchange in Numbers 22, verses 28 through 30. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And then Balaam said to the donkey, because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you. So this is kind of silly, right? So Balaam, like... The donkey says, why are you treating me so badly like they're a couple? And then Balaam says, you're making it fool of me. Never mind the fact that he's talking to a donkey. He said, no, you are not doing what you're supposed to do. You're making me look like an idiot here, donkey. So then she appeals to the relationship. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life to this day? We shared secrets. We braided each other's hair. Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you. And Balaam, 
captivated by the logic and the reason this amazing animal said, oh, no, you, you make a good point, donkey. And I'm sorry. So you know what's funny? When I come to passages like this, um, I actually don't have a problem with a talking donkey. Like, I, I may be in the minority here. I actually don't have a problem with this. At, at this point in my uh, walk with Jesus or in my uh, f- uh, experience in the faith and reading of the scriptures, like at this point, up until this moment, what I've done is I've accepted the fact that God, the master of the universe, has created the entire universe with a word. Let there be. And the universe is spoken into existence. So I can accept a donkey, a talking donkey. I've seen that God has raised Lazarus from the dead. Like a dead man is now living. So a donkey can talk. Or Jesus himself, the reason that we gather here this morning, has been raised from the dead. And not just raised from the dead, on behalf of me. So I can accept a talking donkey. That's actually not hard. You know what's really hard for me to accept or to believe in this story? What's really difficult for me to get my mind around? Remember Israel is down in the valley and what is the attitude of their hearts? They're spoiled, rotten. They're complaining. Why has God led us into this moment and into this valley? Why has he led us here? We were supposed to be in the promised land a long time ago, but we're stuck right here eating the same thing over and over and over again. They're complaining about how much they lack, how much they need. They're complaining about how long they've been traveling. Why has God led me into this circumstance? All the while, you think they have any idea what God is doing up on the road to Balak? You think they have any idea that God is standing in the gap between the curse and them? God is fighting. He is waging a war on behalf of his people making sure that whatever gets in the way of them receiving their inheritance is going to be eliminated. He's standing in the way. A talking donkey, I'm okay with. But the fact that God sees me in the midst of my complaining, in the midst of my self-centeredness, in the midst of my selfishness, whining about my life circumstance, even in the midst of that, God is fighting my war for me. That's what's hard to believe. And we don't just see it here. We see it all through the scriptures. Ephesians talks about how we were enemies of God. We had waged war. We were in our own rebellion of God because of our sins and our actions. But God, who is rich in his mercy, sent his son to die on the cross. Or in Romans, it says that while we were enemies of God, while we were in the midst of our all-out rebellion, Christ died for us. God is a protector He protects us from the curse which we deserve. But he's not just a protector. He doesn't just protect. protect. God also delivers. Going back to the story of the donkey. So, you know, Balaam opens his eyes. He sees the angel. And he's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? I'm so sorry, angel. I wasn't supposed to be here. What do you want me to do? I can go back home. I can go forward. What do you want? And the angel of the Lord says, yeah, go. That's fine. Go and see Balak. Go and see the king, but you're going to say what I want you to say. And so Balaam agrees. And he goes and he sees King Balak. King Balak runs out. He's really excited. He's finally got the secret weapon to win the war against these Israelites. 
The man has come to curse the people. So he says, that's great. I'm glad you're here. You name your price, whatever you want. Just speak a curse to these people. So they have this scene where they set up on this like hillside, looking down at the people. And Balak says, hey, Balaam, curse the people. Balaam doesn't curse the people. He speaks a blessing on him. And Balak is frustrated. So he's like, okay, uh, okay. all right, Balak, Balaam, come with me. All right, from here, look down at the people over here. Speak a curse on them. And Balaam stands on the hillside and he looks down at Israel and he speaks a blessing on them. Balak, I don't know why, but he says, Ugh! and so he's like, okay, now Balaam, come with me, come over here now and speak to the people over here. And I want you to speak a curse on them. Do it. Balaam does what? Speaks a blessing over the people, like an extended blessing over them. He refuses to curse the people of God. God's still fighting their war. So after that, Balak is obviously irate, like he is angry. And he tells Balaam, go back to your home. I don't want you here. You were supposed to come here and do what I said. I offered you a lot of money. You're turning it all down. All you were supposed to do is to curse these people and you're refusing to do it. Get out of here. And Balaam, uh, trash talker, uh, Balaam says, yeah, okay, I'll go home. I'm, I told you that I was only going to say what the Lord wanted me to say. I'll go home. Ew. But before I leave, can I tell you what these people down here are going to do to your people? And then he launches into a tirade of the victory of Israel over the people of Moab. He says this in Numbers twenty four seventeen. He's speaking of the Messiah here. He says, I see him, but not quite now. I behold him, but he's not near A star is going to come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. What he's saying here is somebody out of these people is going to be raised up by God himself. And you, Balak, you can gather all the prophets in all the world and speak all the curses against him and he rises victoriously. And when he does, he will go right through your kingdom and he will be unstoppable. A servant is going to rise out of this people. So when did we see it? We saw it in Jesus. We saw the servant rise out of the people. And all of the curses and all of the violence that hell itself and mankind could pour on to Jesus, the Messiah had its way with him. What do I mean by all the curses of hell and mankind? Well, the Messiah, Jesus, God has an enemy. It's Satan. And Satan has an army, a legion of people that are in opposition at war against God. And when Christ was alive and when he was on the cross, they waged war on him. But that wasn't all of the war. That wasn't all of the curse that was being put on Jesus. No, you and I put a curse on Jesus also. When we through the things that we think or the things that we say or the things that we do that don't match the standard of God. That's called sin. Our sin invokes a curse on us. We are at war with God, so we are cursed. That's our lot, all of us, for all time. That's where we stand in opposition to God. We are cursed. But what happened with Jesus when he dies on the cross is he took that curse onto himself. All of the curse that hell could muster and all the curse that humankind could muster fell on him. And he died. I mean, who could stand up under that, right? But he died. And he rose again, hallelujah. And he rose again victoriously because nobody's stopping him. This is why when it says in John 3.16 that 
Christ died. God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to die on a cross so that if you believe on him, you shouldn't perish, but have eternal life. You shouldn't perish. You shouldn't fall to your curse. You would be protected, but then you would be delivered into eternal life. So where does that leave all of us? It leaves us with the fact that somebody's taken the curse for us. And how we are delivered and protected from that curse is if we believe in Jesus. That's what the text says. So if we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose again, we are free from our curse, the curse of sin. Now we still deal with sin and we're still forgiven daily, but the penalty of sin being someone of being someone that's at war at odds with God is gone. It's eliminated. The curse fell on Jesus once and for all. God protects and God delivers. But some of you may be in here saying protection, deliverance, like you're going back through your life and you're saying, where was my protector? Where was my protection whenever I was enduring whatever it was that you were enduring? I begged to be protected and I wasn't protected. Or, or others of you may be saying, where was my deliverance? I begged and I pleaded for God to take away that which I wanted to be delivered from. Where was my protector and where was my deliverance? I'm going to draw your attention. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, I don't know. For your specific situation, I don't know. Those are important questions. And those are great questions to ask God or to ask your church family. Those are great questions. I don't know what protection and deliverance look like for you. But I know how to think through that stuff. So I want to direct our attention to the map of of Israel. Uh, Blake showed this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, And also, for those of you who are helping with communion, y'all can go ahead and head, head to the back. Um, this is the map of Israel. Remember, they have, on all the way to the left, they have Egypt, and all the way to the right, they have the promised land. And the route that they took was not necessarily what you would call direct. Uh, so I'm looking at this, and just kind of thinking, reflecting on the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers, and I'm trying to figure out what, what all happened on that red squiggly line. What all took place? Well, rebellion took place. Um, all over the squiggly line. Uh, Enemies encountered them on that squiggly line. The line was long and arduous. This isn't Fiji, all right? They're, they're They're walking through a wilderness that's desolate. That's what it looks like for them to enter into the promised land. It's not direct and it's not quick. It's a long process. But what I see is that God, even in the midst of Israel's faithlessness, God is still leading them to the promise. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't write them off. He leads them into the promise. Why? Because he always said he would. Because he promised. This is kind of like an illustration of Romans 8.28. This is, um, we know that in all things God uh, works for the good of those who love him, who have called according to his purpose. That passage there is talking about what God always promised he would do. He's going to do. We see Romans 8.28 on this. He said you were going to enter the land. You're entering the land. And yes, there's battles, and yes, there's evil, and yes, there's obstacles all around, but the plan is getting carried out. So I don't know why you didn't have a protector or a deliverer. What I do know is that he will protect, and he will deliver, and you're moving toward the promise of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
So what do we do with this? And y'all can come down uh, for communion. So what do we do with this? Well, we think about Matthew 22. It says this. Um, it says, uh, we're to love the Lord, our God, with all of our um, heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. So I want to leave you with three things uh, following that kind of principle. I want you to feel something. I want you to feel what it's like to be Israel. I want you, if it resonated with you, to um, find yourself stuck, like Israel was stuck. Y'all can pass them out. Y'all can pass out. If it resonated with you that this people was stuck, that they were somewhere that they weren't supposed to be, that they didn't plan on being, I want you to feel that. And what I mean by that is, I don't want you to feel guilty if you're feeling stuck, if you're feeling complaining, if you're frustrated at God. I don't want you to feel guilty about that. I want you to feel it, not be distracted away from it. I I want you to not Netflix out of it. I want you to feel that and have that longing for God, understanding that the void is there and not filling it with other things. Don't feel guilty. You know it's beautiful? You know how God delivered Israel so many times in this wilderness? He delivered them one of the times by looking at a staff. Just looking at a staff and they were delivered. They were freed. What does that tell us? God stands ready to heal and to accept. Stop beating yourself up and just look to God. And he accepts you. He stands ready. So that's what to feel. I want you to know this. I want you to know that when it seems like you're in a spot that you don't understand why you're here or how long you're going to be in this spot, God is fighting your battles. He still stands in the gap. He champions you and he desires for you to participate in his good work. He wants you to have um, abundant and amazing life. He desires that for you and he's working like every time a piece of food enters into your mouth, he is fighting for you. Like he is providing for you your daily bread. Every breath that you take, he is sustaining you. That is a gift to you. I want you to know that. And finally, I want us to do communion. You know what communion is? Communion is, uh, it's our chance to gather together to remember a few things. One, we remember that what gathers this group of uh, misfits and dysfunctional people together is that we are one body. So I may not like connect with you really well, or maybe I connect with you really well, but we're family. I may not like you a whole lot. That's on me. But we're, fam- but we're family. Why? Because this is the most defining thing about us. When we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, that is the most important thing in all of our lives. That is the defining moment for all of us. It shapes our worldview. It shapes our work. It shapes our parenting. It shapes our day-to-day life. So we remember communion because to forget communion, to forget the body and the blood of Christ, is to forget our way. So we're going to take communion together. 1 Corinthians 11 Verse 23, it says this. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Y'all can take the bread. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take the cup. So as we respond in gratitude for the body and blood of Christ, for the reality that he protects and he delivers us, we're going to end in worship this morning.